On December the 6th, 1273, Thomas Aquinas, who is a Catholic theologian, writer, scholar, was celebrating Mass when he had some kind of profound and powerful experience with God. We don't know what it was. He never elaborated on it. Was it a vision? Was it a word? Was it a thought? We don't know. All we know is that from that moment on, Thomas Aquinas stopped writing. He stopped writing. Up to this point in life, many people would say that all Thomas had done, at least in his adult life, was study and write. So one account said for Thomas Aquinas to stop writing was almost like Thomas Aquinas stopped breathing. Did a little research. William Shakespeare wrote 884,657 words in his lifetime. He was 52 when he died. As of a few years ago, the most recent statistic I could find, Stephen King had written just over 5,800,000 words. This he did, of course, with the help of typewriters and computers. My guess is he's past the 6 million word mark by now. He's 73 years old. By comparison, it is conservatively estimated that Thomas Aquinas wrote 8 million words in his lifetime. This in spite of the fact that he died at the age of 50. In spite of the fact that he did not have a laptop. And when I hear that number of words, I have two words that come to mind. Writer's cramp. So for Thomas Aquinas to stop writing was no small thing. It wasn't done on a whim. To the other monks who served with him, they were, they were disturbed. They were bothered by this. In fact, what would later become his most famous work, the Summa Theologica, the Summary of Theology, lay on his desk at this time unfinished. In his lifetime, Thomas wrote scholarly works. He wrote hymns. He wrote poetry. He wrote philosophy. He wrote theology. He has more than one entire philosophical schools of thought named after him. So no, it was no small thing for Thomas Aquinas to stop writing. Something profound happened to him on that day in December in 1273. Finally, one monk, Brother Reginald, got up the courage to ask Thomas, perhaps one of many who asked him, Master, will you not return to your writing? And all Thomas said was, I cannot. He didn't say anything else. He didn't explain himself. Eventually, Brother Reginald, the story goes, worked up the courage again and asked him one more time, Master, will you not return to your work? But this time, Thomas said a little more. He said, I cannot. All that I've written seems like straw to me compared with what I have seen. All that I've written seems like straw to me compared with what I have seen. And with that, his life work ended, and a few months later, he was dead. So I discovered this account in the introduction to a book that I was reading early on in sabbatical, and I found this, this little gem of a quote from Aquinas in, 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 in the introduction, and I, and I underlined it, and later that day I wrote in my journal that it is my prayer, my hope, that if not on sabbatical, sometime in my life I would have an experience like that. That I would see or know or grasp or experience something of, of God that powerful in that profound. I mean, it must have been powerful and beautiful, so much so that Thomas realized that even as brilliant and articulate and as prolific a writer as he was, he could never anymore do justice to the nature or the ways of God, and so he stopped writing. 
Now, if you think that Thomas's experience is a little weird, a little too mystical for you, let me remind you that the Apostle Paul had a similar experience. He writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We actually looked at part of this passage last week when we were talking about the discipline to learn to consent to difficult things and what God was doing in them rather than rebel or resign. This is where we talked about Paul's thorn in the flesh that he received and asking God to take it away and eventually God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Well, right before that, in that that chapter, Paul has been bragging about his credentials as an apostle because people are attacking him. And as he continues to brag, eventually he turns and he starts to do so by sharing about an experience that he had 14 years earlier. Only he tells this experience in the third person, which was a way in that day and age to to, uh, be a little more humble about it. You talk about this person like it's someone, not you. But we all know it's very clear that it was Paul. Every scholar I've ever read agrees. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 through 4, Paul says, I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows. This man was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Caught up to paradise, he heard inexpressible things, things no one is permitted to tell. Paul and Aquinas and others down through history have experienced something beyond what most of us have or possibly ever will experience. These things speak of something more, some deeper, some life-changing experience of Jesus that is out there further up and further in. And whatever we may think of these ecstatic, mystical experiences, though, no matter where any of us might be in our own journeys of faith, no matter how well we know Jesus or how faithful we are at following Jesus, the truth is there is always more to experience and come to know of Jesus. Jesus calls us to deeper water. Jesus calls us to an abundant catch in the abundant life. And I really can't say enough good about the the members of the Vitality team who prayerfully and thoughtfully sense the Holy Spirit's leading to choose this passage as our biblical story four years ago. The purpose of the biblical story in the Vitality Pathway is to give the congregation an image, a narrative, a metaphor to help us become a more healthy missional church. But I would imagine, if I were on this team and I wasn't, I would imagine that they would have been tempted to find something a little happier. Something with a little more hope, a little more good news, a little more encouraging. I mean, Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22 is more than a bit edgy. It sounds like bad news, not good news, at least at first. I would have been tempted to look for something else. By a way of a reminder, in case you're joining us for the first time this morning, this worship and preaching series is entitled Deeper Water. It is an allusion to Jesus' command and to his first disciples who were fishermen in Luke chapter 5 to go out and put their nets into deep water for a catch. After they'd been fishing all night and hadn't caught a thing and were tired and just wanted to go back to bed. And when they did so, when they cast their nets, they caught so many fish, the nets began to break, the boats began to sink. Two weeks ago, on August the 29th, I shared with you 
how that passage uh, used, was used by God to call me to come to ECC in 2007, and I share with you how in the past year God used that same passage to keep me here at ECC. If you want to know more, I suggest you go back and watch or listen to that sermon. The image of fishing in deeper water is a metaphor for God's call that we pursue our own personal and corporate transformation here at ECC, that we seek the more that Jesus has for us, the abundant harvest of fish. And this morning, that journey takes us to Revelation chapter 3. Our passage is the last of seven letters to seven churches that we find in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. Each of the seven letters follows a basic pattern. Each has five parts, though there are some differences. They begin with a description or a name of Jesus, an affirmation about something the church is doing well, a commendation, a correction, here's something you need to work on, a concluding promise, if you do these things, this is what will happen for you. And then there's the exhortation that we hear at the end of each of the letters, almost verbatim, let those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One interesting thing to note about our passage, the last of the seven letters, is that the affirmation piece is not there. The affirmation, the commendation, apparently there's nothing or very little good happening in the Laodicean church that Jesus, who is speaking in the letter, brings to mind. There's nothing to celebrate. Like I said, it's edgy. I find it interesting interesting to note that a theme that we actually looked at last week in Genesis 2 and 3 resurfaces in this morning's passage. Last week, the man and the woman God created were were naked and not ashamed at the end of chapter 2. But when they disobeyed God, their eyes were opened, they could see their nakedness, they were ashamed, and they hid. Later, when they we didn't cover this part, but when they are expelled from the Garden of Eden, God provides animal skins for coverings for them. Now, in Revelation 3, Jesus speaks a word of correction. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one, either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. In biblical imagery, nakedness was a symbol of humiliation and judgment. The church of Laodicea is shamefully naked, and they don't even realize this is the case in verse 17. We see that. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve's eyes were opened, and they saw their shame, but the people of Laodicea are blind. They do not see their shame. They are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, and they don't even know it. They have work to do. And if this is the biblical story that the Spirit has given to us, here at ECC, then we have work to do too. They and we are in need of transformation. We need to come to terms with reality and repent of our sin. Like I said, it sounds like bad news. But how are the Laodiceans to buy gold refined in the fire, white robes to cover their nakedness, and salve to put on their eyes if they are poor? This imagery may be meant to draw our our minds back to one of the passages I had you read if you received the daily scripture email 
Isaiah 55, there God gives an invitation to his people in verse 1. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. So there it is again. How do we buy these things if we don't have money? But notice how Isaiah takes the metaphor of a feast to which we are invited, and it transitions into something else in verses 2 and 3. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. How do we buy wine and milk and bread? We listen to God. We listen to God. We respond to God. We pay attention to God. We come to God and we live To feast with God is to listen and to live. Back in Revelation 3, the invitation is on the other foot. We are on the inside of the house. We think we have everything we need, but Jesus isn't with us. Dinner is served, but Jesus isn't with us. Jesus is on the outside knocking on the door. In verse 19, Jesus tells us that uh, those whom he loves, he rebukes and disciplines. Then he adds this in verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Most often, I think, we, when we have heard this verse, we have heard it used evangelistically. You who don't know Jesus, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. Let him in. Let him come into your heart. But that is not what is going on in this passage. After all, Jesus is knocking on the door of the church of Laodicea. They already know him. And Jesus is knocking on our door, too. We already know Christ. We've already chosen to follow Jesus. So why is he on the outside? Why is Jesus on the outside? Why isn't he already at the table with us? And this comes back to that more, that abundant harvest Jesus has for us, the likes of which most of us have not experienced. We may not get to experience all that Thomas Aquinas or the Apostle Paul experienced, or as we're going to discover next week, D.L. Moody. But I am convinced that we can experience more of what Jesus has to offer us, no matter where we are in our relationship with Jesus. There is so much more abundant life that Jesus wants to give us. But we miss out because we say, we're rich, we've acquired wealth, we don't need a thing. We have what we want. Jesus wants to enter our lives and enter into our congregation in a new and deeper way, but we have left him outside. Jesus wants to feast with us, but we have not invited him to the table. Jesus wants to take us to deeper water, but we're standing on the shore washing our nets or twiddling our thumbs. If you've been with me long enough, you know that there are quotes that I pull out on several occasions, and I'm about to do that again. This is a C.S. Lewis quote that I borrowed several times, and I will borrow it again because he hits the nail on the head with this one. Let's go to the next slide, C.S. Lewis. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Infinite joy. 
In the past, I have read this passage from C.S. Lewis, and I thought it referred to people who don't know Jesus, right? And that may have been a part of Lewis's original intention, but now I hear it differently. Now I hear it as an exhortation to those of us who do know Jesus. <clears throat> We're inside. We're sitting at the table, eating the same old dinner alone. But Jesus is outside. The meal would be so much more if Jesus was dining with us. We are far too easily pleased. I think you and I have often read some of the rebuke passages in the New Testament the way that I read that C.S. Lewis passage. We think they are not aimed at us. We think that Paul or Peter or Jesus must be talking to someone else, not us. They're talking to the sinners, not the saints. We think we are the people that Jesus is healing on the Sabbath when in fact we may be one of the Pharisees who are criticizing him for it. We think we have all we need from this relationship with Jesus. I know where I'm going to spend eternity. That's what matters. But in fact, there is so much more God wants to give us. Jesus wants to feast with us, but we haven't invited him to the table. So I hear people worried about attendance. I hear people concerned about the budget. I hear people agonizing because others have left us for other churches and all of these, are, these things are real. All of them are challenging. But Jesus is asking us to pay attention to something deeper than that, something far more important. We need to ponder these questions. What is the state of your soul? What is the state of your soul? Are you experiencing the abundant life that Jesus says? is ours? Would you describe your life as an abundant life in Christ? Are you enjoying a holiday by the sea with Jesus or are you stuck in the slums making mud pies? And that's okay. Which one is it? This is why we must pursue our own transformation and go to deeper water. It, it leads to true, infinite joy. It leads to abundant life. It leads to union with God like we have never known or possibly even thought possible this side of heaven. Scripture speaks of God's purposes for us as conforming us to the image of His Son, of God's Son. Romans 8, 29. But for that to happen, for us to be conformed to the image of God's Son, by definition, the places in our lives where God must meet us are the places where we are most unlike the Son. Where we are most unlike Christ. And that sounds like bad news. Robert Mulholland Jr. puts it this way in his book, Invitation to a Journey. He says, quote, If indeed the work of God's Formation us is the process of conforming us to the image of Christ, what we call Christiformity. Obviously, it's going to take place at the points where we are not yet formed, conformed to that image. This means that one of the first dynamics of holistic spiritual formation will be confrontation. Through some channel, the scripture, worship, a word of proclamation, the agency of a brother or sister in Christ, even the agency of an unbeliever, the Spirit of God may probe some area in which we are not conformed to the image of Christ. That probing will probably always be confrontational. And it will always be a challenge and a call to us in our brokenness to come out of the brokenness 
into wholeness in Christ, but it will also be a costly call because that brokenness is who we are. Mulholland goes on to say that our brokenness, our incompleteness, is not like a sweater that we can unbutton and take off whenever we want. It's not that simple. It's who we are. It's deeply ingrained in us. And it hurts when it's confronted. We don't like to find out about those places in our lives where we are incomplete or unfinished or too content with honorable mention. The Apostle Paul runs the race to win the prize. He presses on to win the prize for which Jesus has called him. We're happy with the participation award. We'll get there. Jesus wants to feast with us, but we are content to meet together in his name and dine without him at the table. So much bad news. To be compared to the church of Laodicea is painful and harsh. And as I said, seems an awful lot like bad news. But that's only on the surface. That's only on the surface. For this biblical story that God has given us is supercharged with hope and good news for those who have ears to hear. It is supercharged with hope and good news. There is good news. Jesus is knocking on the door. He has not given up on us. He isn't ringing the doorbell and running and hiding in a ditch. He is on the porch, knocking on the door. We are still his church. With everything going on in the church of Laodicea, or not going on in the church of Laodicea, it's still his church. And that's good news. More good news, Jesus is persistent. He is inviting us to invite him to come to the table. He did the same with Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Zacchaeus climbs up a tree. He hears Jesus is coming. He climbs up a tree to get a good look at him. And when Jesus gets underneath the tree where Zacchaeus is hanging out, I picture him stopping, looking up, and smiling, maybe even laughing. Zacchaeus, come on down. We're having dinner at your house today. Jesus is persistent, and that's good news. More good news. If we hear his voice and we open the door, he will come in and dine with us. He will make good on the more he wants to give us. So to repent is to listen to Jesus, to hear his voice and to open the door. When we began the Vitality Pathway more than four years ago, we learned that what we are is a stable church. And that sounds good, but it's not. Stability is not the goal. The goal is to become a healthy missional church. And I, I need to tell you this. It's happening. I see it in my staff, I see it in me, I see it in council. It's happening. I hear about it when I talk to some of you. We are being remade. We are becoming a more healthy, missional church, one by one. Stable churches, though, stable churches have much of what they need. They're never really very desperate. They can get by and last for a while because of the resources they have. When I worked with Youth with a Mission... And it had been around by that time for 25 or 30 years. The founder, Lauren Cunningham, said, you know, we've got so much momentum right now, the Holy Spirit could leave us and we could go on for another five years. Not a compliment. But it can be a reality. If you have your needs met, if things are going well, you don't need anything else. Stable churches, we might say, are neither hot nor cold. They may say to themselves, we've got everything we need. We're fine. 
Stable churches, we also learned, are not in need of monumental changes in program or ministries. Stable churches need incremental changes in programming and a monumental change of heart, just like the church in Laodicea. Incremental changes in programming and a monumental change of heart. At the core of the message that of, of what I discern God wants us to know from this passage on this day at this time, there is so much more to the Christian life, so much more to our transformation, and there always will be. There will always be more of Christ, and we are invited to begin to step into that and experience that even now. We're going to visit this idea again in next week's passage, this idea of more. But for today, I want to end with a question, two prayers, and a promise. Question, do you want to experience all that God in Christ has to give you? Sounds like a trick question, it's not. Do you want to experience all that God in Christ has to give you? If your answer is yes, I ask you to make that your prayer in the coming days. Simply pray this once a day. God, in your mercy, wisdom, and timing, I ask for more of the abundant life you have for me. You can pray it more often than that if you want, but just start there. God, in your mercy, wisdom, and timing, I ask for more of the abundant life you have for me. And maybe as you're praying that other words and other requests will well up out of that. All of this is in the Bible app live event, by the way. The question and the prayer. Finally, a promise. We dare not forget the promise at the end of the biblical story. Chapter 3, Revelation, verse 21. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. I want you to let that sink in for a minute. If we open the door, if we invite Jesus to the table of our lives, we will sit with him on his throne next to the Father God. And I do not think that only means at the end of the age. I think it's also about here and now. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3 that we too can, we have died with Christ, we have been raised with Christ, and we can be seated with Christ on the throne now. If we step into the more that Jesus has for us, we will be victorious. We will sit down with God and Christ on the throne. There is more Christ has for us, friends, so much more. There are, these are the deeper waters into which Jesus calls us. And it begins, very simply, with us wanting it. Choosing not to be content, but wanting more. Not in a greedy way, but because it is what God has for us. It begins with us wanting it, with us opening the door, and us inviting Jesus to the table. What might that look like for you or for us? Stay tuned. And plan to keep joining us in the weeks to come. My kids, whenever a series comes out, they're used to watching the whole TV series in one long binge weekend. Some of the shows we watch still do it the old-fashioned way and only come out once a week. And I tell my kids, you should watch this show. Oh, no, we're not watching that until they're all out. 
I can't give you an all-out picture of what this is going to look like this morning because you have to wait from week to week. It's growing. It's building. There's something to be learned from a willingness of those of us from a certain generation to say, no, I look forward to every Friday night when a new episode of Ted Lasso comes out. Sorry, I love Ted Lasso. So I encourage you to stay tuned, to keep worshiping with us, and to keep praying that prayer that God will give you more of what it is he has to give you. A second prayer. Catherine of Siena was a lay member of the Dominican order in the mid-1300s. Her writing and activism still influence followers of Jesus today. So I'm going to close with a portion of one of her prayers. I want you to just let her words be the words of our hearts today. Again, this is in the Bible app too. And let it be, if you need it, a prayer for you every day. And I want you to listen as I share her words in prayer for the imagery of thirst and hunger and what it means to be satisfied. And then I'll go on and pray a prayer over us all. Would you pray with me? You, eternal Trinity, you are like a deep sea within which the more I seek you, the more I find, and the more I find, the more I seek. You satisfy my soul in a way that is almost insatiable since your unfathomable depth fills the soul in such a way that it always remains hungry and thirsty for you, eternal Trinity. Our good and gracious God, we give you thanks for Thomas Aquinas and the Apostle Paul. We give you thanks for all down through the years who have experienced something more of you and remind us that there is more that you have for us. And God, we don't ask that we have to have what they experience, but we do know you have more to offer us. And I pray that you would take us, Lord, as your people, as this group of people that meets at ECC, further up and further in. Take us, Lord God, to deeper waters. Transform us, Lord. Help us to see some vision of your kingdom that would inspire us and motivate us. Help us to get a picture of what it means for us to sit on the throne with you and to be victorious, Lord, and cause what we learn, what we see there, Lord, to overflow out of our lives into one another's lives and beyond this into our community, into our world. Oh God, we long for you. We long for you to come and fill us, to satisfy our hunger with yet more hunger for you, to quench our thirst with more thirst for you. God, I pray for everyone within the sound of my voice this day. I pray that we would all hunger and thirst for you. I pray, Lord, where that is not a part of some of us this day, that you would make it a part of us, that you would pry open something that needs to be pried open, that you would break open something that needs to be broken open, that we would all hunger and thirst for more of you. Lord, we don't want to be complacent. We don't want to think we have everything we need. We need you to come in and sit at the table with us and offer us your feast. And may you receive all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.